Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we were honored to bring back Terrell Gibbons. Terrell and his son Nathaniel have recently released a new book called Into the Headwinds, Why Belief Has Always Been Hard and Still Is. This is such a remarkable book and it addresses some of life's most profound questions, especially as they pertain to the modern world. Terrell and Nathaniel argue that though many of us see faith as hard in our scientific and rational age, the reality is that for at least many years, faith may have actually been too easy. People of faith, and Christians in particular, have long benefited from being part of the in-crowd. Since Rome adopted Christianity as its official religion, it's been quite comfortable to call oneself a Christian. But Terrell and Nathaniel say that that may have produced a more fragile discipleship, and one that focused more on how we believe than on how we live. So in this conversation, we dive into all of this with Terrell, including how he defines faith, the limits of agency, how reckoning with our own biases is key to our own spiritual life, and how we can look well outside of our own tradition to find examples of true discipleship. We're sure that most of you know Terrell, but just in case, Terrell Givens is the Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University. He formerly held the University of Richmond's Jabez A. Botswick Chair of English, where he was a professor of literature and religion. He is the author and co-author of numerous books, including All Things New, The God Who Weeps, and The Crucible of Doubt. Nathaniel Givens, the co-author on this book, has been published in First Things, The Desert News, and Real Clear Religion on the topics of faith and politics. With graduate degrees in economics and systems engineering, Nathaniel works as a data analyst and entrepreneur. We're so grateful to you, as always, for listening, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Terrell Givens. Well, Terrell, it's so good to be with you again. Thanks for coming Love back. my conversations with both of you. As do we. Um, this book, Into the Headwinds, uh, was actually written with your son, Nathaniel. It was written with my son, Nathaniel, and I want to make sure that uh, I, I want to make it clear it was his uh, project, mm. uh, and he's worked on it kind of intermittently for, I think, almost a decade. Uh, wow. Oh, wow. And uh, he just got to a point where he couldn't quite pull it all together and, and finish it, and so he asked me if I would help him kind of pull it together, edit and wrap it up. Wow. And so we worked on it together and, uh, you know, one of the great privileges of my life to write a book with, uh, with yeah. my son. Um, so yeah, it was a wonderful it was, project. It, had a different, it has a slightly different flavor than yeah. your normal books. You can tell that there's some, there's something else going on. I, 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 I loved it also. It was great. Yeah, totally. And, uh, do you want to tell the story about this book being published? It's it, a yeah. new publisher, right? Than we've yeah. ever seen from you. Um, you know, I, uh, one of my last books was published with Faith Matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, Fiona and I did the All Things New and, we love going with Faith Matters for a couple of reasons. One, because we love and support the organization. Um, Thank you. And two, because uh, I, I wasn't suffocated by editorial interventions. <laughs> um, and uh, so, Nathaniel, I thought we'd go with, to Faith Matters with, with this book, uh, Into the Headwinds. And, you know, Bill Turnbull read it and he said, yeah, we could publish this, but this really deserves a general Christian audience. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that might be a tough tough thing to pull off. Um, but so I, I thought about it and decided that uh, I thought Erdman's was one of the, the better uh, Christian presses out there. And so I thought, what, what the heck, let's give it a shot. So I sent the manuscript in a query letter to Erdman's and within, I think like within a week, 
I got this email back and they said, this is, we love this manuscript. Oh, wow. Why would you, why would you want to publish it with us? <laughs> right. Really? So can I digress to give a backstory yeah, yes. that explains why? Yes. So, um, uh, about a, about two years ago, I conceived another project, a, a major project, um, revisiting the history of Christianity, uh, through a, a kind of LDS lens. And I went to my press, uh, Oxford UP, uh, with a proposal and again, very quick feedback. Oh, we love this project. Let's wrap, let's, let's put it together in a package and, and see if we can green light this thing. And then over the intervening days, I thought, you know, are we, are we as Latter-day Saint scholars deceiving ourselves in terms of who we're really talking with and to, uh, because Mormon studies has kind of come of age as a subdiscipline. It seems to have a lot of credibility. We have presses now competing for, for books, Illinois and UNC and Oxford. And, and so I, I, I wrote back to the editor and I said, yeah, I want to do the same project, but it's not, I'm not doing this as a Latter-day Saint. Mm. This is not a book in Mormon studies. I just want it to be a general history of Christianity that happens to be informed by my perspective, to which the reply was immediately, oh, well, I'm not sure we're interested then. Wow. Really? And that was the moment when I realized, you know, to some extent, we've kind of been given our little corner in the sandbox. Yeah. And told, as long as you all play with each other there nicely, you can, you can harbor the illusion that you're really engaged in the broader conversations going on in the Christian world Whoa. scholarship. So yeah. what's the reluctance there? Is it uh is it more ideological or is it financial it, it, it's hard to say because you know generally it's always the financial motive that drives editorial <clears throat> decisions but at a university press you think they have a little bit of a higher standard but i think it was just a reflection of the fact that there is still uh a, a kind of pervasive suspicion of whether latter-day saints are really part of mm. the, the mm -hmm. conversation and whether they really have earned a place at the table of serious christian scholarship uh, that's just Right. That's yeah. that's how I interpret it. Um, so anyhow, so <clears throat> so I'm I'm thinking about this at the same time that we're, we're I'm submitting this to Erdman's, and I'm thinking this would be a test case for whether a Latter Day Saint voice, two voices in this case, mm -hmm. could be recognized as legitimate legitimate interlocutors in a Christian conversation. And so Nathaniel and I were thrilled that Erdman's was interested. And, and prior to submitting the manuscript to them, we had purged the manuscript of all specific references to Latter-day Saint theology. Um, and so we were happy to, to sign with them. They were happy to have us. I, I loved where the book begins, which is this note to the reader. And <clears throat> right off the bat, you, you, you decide how you're going to define faith. And you bring up this idea that there are two inseparable aspects of faith, which I appreciated like that that felt like an important place to start that this is what we're talking about and you and you you talk about how faith is belief, but it's also relationships. So do you want to just frame this entire conversation like let's start with like what are we even talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know faith is one of those terms like love that, that philosophers yeah. and theologians mm -hmm. have wrangled over and yeah and so, uh, I'm enough of a nominalist to recognize that in part we're just constructing a definition. There isn't some mm -hmm. actual mm. ideal truth out there as to what the word means. But I think it's extremely helpful, both in terms of, of, of historic Christianity, but also in terms of, of discipleship and wrestling with discipleship to make a differentiation between the, the original emphasis in the Old Testament on faith as relational 
right? Mm -hmm. Abraham had faith insofar as he was committed to God and demonstrated loyalty and trust. So that's kind of faithfulness. Yeah. But it's still captured in the fact that in the restoration, we generally pair faith with faith in Jesus Christ. So that emphasizes the relationality. But pistis, the New Testament uh, Greek word for faith, comes to acquire the connotations, if not denotations, of uh, assent to a series of propositions. So you have faith in the atonement, you yeah. have faith in the restoration, you have faith in Joseph Smith as <clears throat> a Articles prophet. of faith. Yeah. Articles like, of so faith. Yeah, are you yeah. saying that it came to acquire that during the New Testament or well, later on? Later on, subsequent okay. to the New Testament. I mean, it, it arises kind of out of the New Testament because Paul becomes the first kind of theologian, right, who articulates in ways that I think are incredibly problematic and ambiguous, but he, he articulates, right, uh, kind of uh, incipient understandings of atonement. Um, Christ's role as as redeemer and and so forth, original sin that, as it comes to be interpreted out of mm -hmm. his writings to the Romans. Um, but by the time we get to modern Christianity, you know, you have people like Peter Enns who are recognizing, wait a minute, something has gone off the rails because now faith is entirely a matter of assent yes. yeah. to these tenets and what happened to the relationship. So I think the advantage for us can 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 be not just in corrected kind of the historical differentiation of emphasis, but also in terms of a personal commitment to, to faith to recognize uh, that I can be absolutely committed to Christ as a non-negotiable commitment, but I can still hold in, in suspension my understandings of various propositions about, well, what does it mean to be a prophet? What is the nature of translation? What exactly did Christ do by dying on the cross? Those kinds of beliefs can go through challenge and reformulation and evolution without calling into question your commitment mm -hmm. as a disciple. Mm -hmm. And I think more Latter-day Saints recognize that differentiation and, and applied it in their disciples' life, then the whole edifice wouldn't crumble every time yeah. the tenet yeah. comes into question. The underlying faithfulness would still be intact. Yeah. And would you would you take it even so far as that like could that underlying faithfulness be too what Christ represents, because I think even that starts deconstructing for people too. Like you, you start wondering, do I even believe in Jesus outside of, you know, as a, as a, was there a historical literal resurrection? Like, can you hold what Christ represents? Now that's, that's a really if, good question, Aubrey, because what you're, what you're pointing to there is that there's inevitably a kind of bleeding between these categories. Yeah. And I think that's true. Um, so I, I guess what I would say is, and this is what I, what I've, I've said to individuals who have asked me, how do you ground your faith in Christ? Where is that, be that bedrock? And, and to them, I say, you know, I believe that something supernal and uh, inexplicable, I'm like James Talmadge in this regard, I don't pretend to understand what we even mean by his atoning sacrifice. But what I think I do know as a matter of historical record is that this man, Jesus, willingly gave himself up to torture and death on the cross because he was convinced that by doing that, he could alleviate my pain, promote my healing, and bring about my resurrection. So for me, that's kind of a baseline that doesn't require any kind of leaps into theology or doctrine. Okay. And so I would hope that most people could at least start with that. Yeah. 
that mm. basic. I love that. Okay. I felt like, sorry, I, no, please. Like, no, I'm yeah. jumping out of my seat. You're good. I just, I had this experience reading the first, like the note to the reader in the introduction, the beginning of the first chapter of like having been working on this very big intense puzzle and someone coming in like swishing around all the pieces <laughs> because because you write right at the beginning you kind of address this fact that we're we love to set up faith and reason as this dichotomy yeah. and and right at the beginning of the book you 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 just you have to come to terms with the fact that faith involves a lot of reasoning yeah. like we're making yeah. observations and deciding what seems the most logical and and reason involves a lot of intuition and bias and like it just felt like okay i don't even know i have nothing now so like yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and you know the dichotomy between faith and reason has really been exploited by those hostile to the christian faith uh in ways that are just kind of absurd, right? Uh, and, and they reduce religious belief to a character. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. the new atheists have done, right? I mean, I don't know anybody who's a serious thinker that that takes them seriously because they've created just a, a caricature of, of Christians as being fideists, meaning they only believe if it is absurd and discount mm -hmm. reason. And now the categories are much more porous than than that. And uh, I can't remember if we if we talk about this explicitly in the book. You've read it more recently than I have. <laughs> but um, you know, if I were to ask you, and as a rational being, what is the rational basis for most of the day to day decisions that you make? Is it deduction? No, I don't begin with givens and then derive. Oh, then right. is it induction? You add up A and B and C and D, and you get no. It isn't really that. It's abduction. Right, abduction is a third rational operation whereby we come up with an explanation that makes the best sense, given our data, of an underlying truth. I mean, that's that's how we operate from day to day, and that's a rational operation that is entirely consistent with the operations of faith and testimony, where we see all of these things that transpire in our life and in the world and in history, uh, in our hearts and in our minds, and we try to come up with a paradigm elucidates all of those different bits and pieces of, of evidence and experience. And we call that a testimony or we call that mm -hmm. that faith. And that's, that's a rational operation. Uh, it's simply more expansive than induction or deduction because it also admits of the reality both of other layers of the universe beyond the material and because it allows of other ways of knowing beyond the purely logical or or deductive. Mm -hmm. you yeah. use, um, sorry. No, it's okay. all you know. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Well, you use, so uh, the, the way the book is framed is that there are, there are these headwinds to faith, right? You talk about rationalism and what you call scientism. Um, the first, uh, the first rationalism, you actually, there's a term that you use, uh, which is the rationalist delusion, which I think, without context, which you know listeners may not have right now, could raise some eyebrows. What what do you mean by that by that term? Well, um, first of all, I want to make clear that that we we value the rational faculties, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and we don't in any way disparage rationalism itself. But what what has happened um, in many cases in popular culture is that we have erected this ideal of the self as a rational entity in whom manifestations of uh, emotion or intuition are imperfections that have yeah. to be purged. Right. Yes. And in economics, this has actually become kind of codified in the practice of thinking of, of us as 
rational agents, right? Yes. Yeah. But it just in the last five years, there was a Nobel Prize given for sort of deconstructing exactly. that paradigm a little bit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, this is also the case with scientism. No really good scientist is falls into the trap of scientism, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, no really good intellectual falls into the trap generally of hyper-rationalism, but a little learning is a dangerous thing. And so mm -hmm. you, you, there are a lot of people who go through this, the stages of, of kind of wanting to um, acquire the trappings of, of intellect and education and sophistication. And so they, they slip into that kind of fallacy of mm -hmm. dichotomist di dichotomous thinking and assume that, well, to be a, 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 a fully realized human being, I have to privilege the rational at the expense of all other kinds of faculties. And that's that's just kind of absurd. Mm. Yeah. So maybe this brings us to Jonathan Haidt and the writer and the elephant. Yeah. This yeah. is such a useful metaphor. Like it feels like once you see it, then you just yeah, the elephant and the writer yeah. popularized by 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 Jonathan. I'm not even sure where he is now. He was at UVA for many years. I can't. Mm. I, I don't know if he's still there. I'm not sure either. But um, he's he's popularized this imagery because uh, all cognitive uh, science today acknowledges. Um, two different ways of thinking. They're not actually physically disparate realms of the brain, mm -hmm. but, um, and we enumerate, I don't know, six or eight or 10 different cognitive psychologists or scientists who yeah. use their own language, right? Elephant yeah. writer, that was, that was fascinating. Master in the emissary or, you know, but the yeah. point is that there's a growing recognition that um, we are not uh, in control as rational agents of belief formation to the extent that we think we are. And so you can look up uh, an art the article on Wikipedia, and I can't even remember, Cognitive Bias, I think mm -hmm. is the article. And, right, and, and it lists now, it keeps growing, but there are now over a hundred yeah. forms really? of cognitive bias that have been documented, right, scientifically, experimentally. Uh, you know, one of the most common, for example, is just confirmation bias, where yeah. we just tend to notice and glom on to those data points that reaffirm us in our, 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 our prejudices and prior judgments. But there are all kinds of things at work shaping our beliefs uh, in ways that we are not aware. And so, you know, some people have read this book and said, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a downer. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I, I hope if you persevere to the end, yeah. it's not. But yeah. part of, the, of what we're trying to do is, is to provoke and to awaken us to the scope of the challenge yeah. that faith presents, that we do have to be much more reflective and self-aware about the limitations of rationality and about those hidden influences that shape belief formation mm -hmm. so that we can take more <clears throat> control and ownership for our beliefs. So, I remember feeling a lot of fear learning about <clears throat> different biases because I was afraid that I would realize that's all it was. Yeah. Like that was a terrifying experience. And I was afraid that if I got to that point, then like belief would be out of my grasp, that there would just be nothing left. And, yeah. and you say like, no, 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 we've got to like reckon with the elephant, like dig in and find all the biases and recognize where intuition is at play and where, where these biases are at play or where reason is at play. But like, how, how is that not actually just so threatening to your spiritual life? Well, because I think that it helps to recognize, to, to, to be a realist about problems of moral agency. Um, and, you know, 
Fiona and I have gotten pushed back on this in some of our own work because mm. we emphasize the degree to which we're all wounded, yeah. to which we are all fractured and, and hurting, and the ways in which agency is always compromised. Yeah. And I've yeah. had people respond very directly by saying, no, everybody is responsible for their actions. I, and, and so to that, I want to say, okay, so you have alcoholic parents, you're born with a predisposition toward alcoholism, you're raised in poverty and abandoned as a child and you fall in. You have the exact same degree of accountability as somebody who's raised in an yeah. affluent, Christian, believing, healthy environment. That's That's patently absurd. So our point is that we are never in a position to judge. Mm. The degree of accountability. Yeah. And, you know, if there's one principle that I think is just has to be a bedrock Christian principle, and that's if we're going to err, let's err on the side of mercy and, and generosity and, and leave final judgment to God. But our point is that in spite of the degree to which we are wounded and impaired, choice is always present. Yeah. yeah. There's always a degree of agency. And it seems to me that one really productive way to think about the purpose of life. And I think this is something that is both doctrinally sound and I think it's <clears throat> cognitive scientifically sound, is that we are here to enlarge the sphere of our moral agency. Oh, that's so interesting. So we are yeah. born into a world where we largely are reactive to the environment. We respond to needs yeah. that are biological and emotional. And hopefully by making good choices and listening to the right voices, we become more and more independent that is so interesting not yeah i i really love that i like that too yeah but i'm curious like it once you're going down that path of like seeing in some cases how little agency we seem to have you can you can fly off the cliff with that one pretty quickly and say like i don't see why i should have stopped at the edge yeah, and say there yeah. is some semblance still of accountability here like what what made you stop and say there is there is free will you know sometimes uh, simple arguments are the most persuasive and i've always been just deeply convicted of the truthfulness of of kant's recognition when he says we all experience guilt mm. Mm. and guilt means we know we could have acted differently and if we could have acted differently, then we were free to act differently. Mm. And I think that's wow. kind of the most economical and compelling argument for the reality of free will. We know at some level that there is always a capacity for choice that uh, that resides mm. within us. We just have to feed the flame. Mm. That's so, so interesting. Let me ask you, for, uh, um, sort of along the lines of uh, uh, this conversation about rationalism, what do, what do you say to an argument, and it may be a fairly simplistic argument, but one that says, look at look all around us. Like this this life that we live, this very privileged, comfortable life where we have plenty to eat. We've got, I mean, for the most part, um, many people in the world have plenty to eat, have food over their, uh, shelter, roofs over their heads. Um, that's been brought about by rationalism primarily. And if you go back to, and again, this is Simplified and naive, and but I'm trying to present the argument sure. to a world that was ruled primarily by religious belief rather than rationalism, and we're getting into science here as well. Um, that was a much darker, a much darker time for everyone. So let's just take rationalism and use it as our primary epistemological resource. Yeah, I, I think uh, there are a couple of really powerful counters to that to to to, to that argument, or at least its implications, and and one is. Historically, you're you're confusing, um, in part, rationalism with technology. Mm. <laughs> in part, you're obscuring the role that imagination and magic uh, have always played in scientific discovery, so-called. And we 
we we do a pretty comprehensive, well, at yeah, least that, representative list of examples. You know, you'd go to Newton, who was a convicted alchemist yeah. and, and mythologist, right? Um, so historically, that's just not a fully accurate picture. But I think the more important reply to that is um, how easy it is to confuse uh, ease of life and alleviation from the physical burdens of existence with meaning and joy uh, and satisfaction. Why, why, to the extent that we become one more affluent as a society, do we have more rates of suicide, more rates of abuse, more rates of depression, more rates of all of these other forms of woundedness? So I think that just kind of prima facie, right? It just immediately puts to rest the myth that rationalism is going to... I mean, that was the enlightenment illusion, right? That now we're rational beings, we understand the primacy of reason, and we can create our own utopia. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, where, where Where's that the utopia? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Before we move on from, I mean, we're not really going to move on from science, but just talk for another second about how how you mean that that science needs these things that we call very unscientific, like bias and intuition and magic. Like, how, how did that actually help progress? And there's this one line I love that you say something like you have to, for science to progress, you have to dismiss reason occasionally. Like now and then you have to totally dismiss reason. And I, I just want like, talk about that for a minute. What do you mean? Because we want to believe that that's the opposite of science, that science is only what you can prove. And then you take that little bit and you expand it and then that's solid. And then you expand yeah, it. And like, yeah. there's no, there's nothing yeah. like wishy-washy well, I, I, and experimental. I think part of this is, is, is that magic. we have a very simplistic notion that we probably all picked up in junior high school about what constitutes the scientific method, right? And, yeah. and most scientists will tell you there isn't a scientific method. <laughs> there's a scientific <laughs> attitude, mm. which means we, we try to propound hypotheses that are falsifiable and that are subject to correction through the gathering and analysis of data. So that's an attitude that has turned out to be incredibly productive yeah. of technological progress. But, um, you know, I'm not a science scientist. I'm not a historian of, of, of science. So there are others who could give better answers to this. But I would just, I would just use the example of, of Einstein, right? So what is it that precipitated the Einsteinian revolution and in, in the understanding of rel uh, relativity? It was thought experiments, mm -hmm. right? He wasn't at work in a laboratory he was thinking, oh, what happens if I'm falling in an elevator? How would that be? How would I know if I'm moving or the, how, what, right? It's, or what would happen if I were riding the head of a beam of light? What would, right? So it's these incredible thought experiments that are pure feats of imagination where he steps out of the box of conventional paradigmatic thinking and is able to imagine new possibilities and new new contact. And I think that that from my view as a as a as an amateur right lover of scientific history, that seems to me very very typical of those moments of paradigm rupture and mm. leaps forward, which which uh, are always a product of imaginative yeah. thinking. Mm. Is there anything problematic about completely overlaying that kind of openness with faith? Like that kind of just scientific attitude that like I'm always ready for to discover something new and for a paradigm to be challenged. Do you think there's anything problematic about just putting that on top of your faith and saying this is my same exact attitude? Well, I, I, I'm, if I understand your question correctly, I think I would say that no scientist puts everything completely on the table, right? All scientists mm. are begin are, are going to take certain givens as preconditions. Yeah. Okay. For for moving forward, they don't just start 
yeah. from scratch in a vacuum. And that's why, you know, there I go back to, well, what is my faithfulness? What is my bedrock commitment? But I think, um, you know, I've, I've talked before on at least a couple of occasions about my own faith journey in, in which I had experiences that threw everything into, uh, into doubt and, and questioning. And what I recognized through a period of really deliberative introspection and questioning was there are all kinds of things that I know, that I know with absolute certainty, right? I know that child abuse is wrong. Mm -hmm. I know that faithfulness to a wife is better than deception and dishonesty. I know that there is beauty in the world. And, to, you know, so one yeah, can go yeah. on and on and on. So I, I think for me, at least, this was the beginnings of the recognition of a couple of things. One, it was a, a recognition of, of, of the limitations of rationalism, so perceived. And, and second, it was a recognition that our intuitive faculties and our moral faculties and our capacity to love, which I think is a form of knowledge, deserve much greater respect and trust as uh, vehicles of genuine insight and meaning. Mm -hmm. I, Go ahead. I, I was just going to ask that um, that sort of thought experiment that you that you describe, where you're saying there are things that I recognize that I truly know. Like I've I've gone through similar things, and when I've been most deconstructed, the the first step to some sort of reconstruction has been similar to what you're describing, where it's like. I know there's a difference between between good and evil. Um, I feel that deep within me. And I remember first um, reading about, uh, reading this sort of argument, I think it was in Mere Christianity, this argument from morality, meaning there for the argument for God based on the idea that we all feel good and evil. And why do different cultures, you know, sort of say that the same things are wrong? You know, courage is good, love is good. Uh, you know, manipulation is bad. If without any real contact with each other, like, why did they come to those conclusions? And sort of the argument goes that it's because a higher power has sort of instilled those those values in us. And I like actually relied on that for a few years, probably for my for my testimony. But then with like a, a better understanding of, of evolution, you realize that there is a certain cooperation that was required by our by our ancestors um, in order to just survive. Like we don't have we're not very strong. You know, we don't have claws. We're not very fast. Um, but what we had was sort of like each other, like we were really good working in tandem with other human beings. And that was a survival mechanism. And what we needed was the ability to cooperate, to love even. And so then I start to worry, like once I understood this, even my, even my deepest feelings of love and compassion might just be survival mechanisms. Yeah. How do you, yeah. how do you deal with that? And you talk about it a little bit in the book, but I want to yeah. bring it up here. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge the correctness of, of, of that perspective. And the, that problem in philosophy and theology is, is referred to as the God of the gaps mm -hmm. yeah. problem. And so uh, Book of Mormon studies, Book of Mormon apologetics for a long time, practiced uh, a mode of apologetics that was susceptible to the God of the gaps argument. Anytime you start something by saying the only possible explanation right. Right. for Joseph knowing this, right? And then suddenly you discover, oh, actually, Wait a second. this book was in the library. Yeah. That he, right? yeah, yeah. So what happens is that the God, the gaps just kind of contract until there's no room for God. So one can never, uh, I don't think one can ever repose uh, one's testimony foundationally 
on evidence accrued from science or, or history or, or, or philosophy. At the same time, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with, as one weighs, right, this infinite array of data, pro and contra, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, being open to the ways in which uh, models like evolutionary psychology just seem to me to be patently deficient in accounting for what I feel are fundamental truths at the, at the, at the deepest level. Um, Darwin was one of the first, right? He, he kind of moves in the direction of, of early efforts at evolutionary psychology, not when he writes Origin of Species, but when he writes a sequel, The Descent of Man, where he says, if evolution is a valid theory, it has to be able to explain not just the wings of a bird, but has to be able to explain conscience and mm -hmm. love of beauty. And he acknowledges he can't do it. And true, right? He's just right, one early scientist trying to do this. But, but he says something very beautiful when he says, you know, my models don't work unless we sacrifice the noblest mm. part of human nature yeah which is his moral faculties yeah and um so I, I can only answer in a very personal way to that question right when i hold a newborn baby in in my hands or when i sometimes look at my wife as she's working late into the night on her project and and my heart just brims with love uh, i just feel that i know that is not a product of evolutionary need. Mm. There's something that, that transcends that. That's beautiful. And I was bringing this up last night with Aubrey when you we were talking about it. a slightly different answer, although I really resonate with what you're saying, was that, well, maybe I, maybe I can't, in fact, prove that what I'm feeling is not, uh, is not just survival. You know, it's not just natural selection. And in fact, I might have to have faith, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. We, we do have to leave room for faith yeah. somewhere in all this. Yeah. I had this really wild experience actually reading the very end of the book. A friend texted me or messaged me out of the blue and said, have you ever heard of this word hesed? It's a Hebrew word hesed. And, and I've never heard of it. And I was reading the thing that she sent me in and it, and it's, it's used around 250 times in the Hebrew Bible and is best translated something like loving kindness. Yeah. It, it's like compassion with this additional imperative that there's going to be some sort of loyalty or action. And it, and it's like the best word for what God feels for God's children. And you end the book there, you, you, you quote this Psalm 143.8 that said, cause me to hear thy has said loving kindness in the morning for in thee I do trust. And that actually was kind of the answer. Like that felt like the balm to me, like uh, with all, all the science and the reason and the questions, and maybe you get to the bottom of evolution and you really can't explain it. For me at the end of the day, it's like, it's that has said that loving kindness is the most transformative, empowering feeling that I've ever experienced. And I, I, maybe it is evolution, but like, I always want to choose that because there's something, it's the most, it's the most beautiful place to be and like i want to feel it for everyone and with everyone and for god and from god and so it just it felt less important it felt like whatever whatever the reason is in spite of or because of evolution i want to feel that always and and i feel like this this choice of belief helps me get there more often yeah yeah thank you that's beautiful let me say a couple of things about yeah. about that um first of all uh one of my favorite theologians is dietrich von hildebrandt and a Catholic theologian. He wrote a book called The Heart, which I recommend to anyone. Uh, it was his doctoral dissertation. And, it, and his thesis is kind of articulated like this. The highest aspiration we have as humans is to be happy, to 
to be joyful. But that's not a rational, <laughs> cognitive mm. experience. Mm. So in what kind of a warped universe do we think that the most important instrument we can attain is rationality, and yet the most important status we want to obtain wow. is that of a feeling of fullness and wholeness and joyfulness. Yeah. So I think that corroborates what, yeah. what, what you're saying. And and the second thing, which would take us in a, in a completely different direction, but you know, my the current project I'm working on is a, is a history of Christianity. And in trying to locate, what are those very specific moments when Christianity just kind of goes off the rails mm. or where individual thinkers, formative thinkers do? And it, and it seemed increasingly in my mind, Christianity boils down to that point of decision involving how do we read that moment when Christ washes the feet of his disciples. Depending on how we read that, Christianity will go in any number of directions. Hmm. And I read that as following immediately upon John's words when he says, if, we're told, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when Jesus says, love of God is the first commandment, but the second is the same, right? Like unto, it's the same, love, love mm -hmm. one another. And then we're told that Christ is the fullest revelation of God. So what does that mean, right? God, for, for millennia, right, is taking different forms and shapes. He's sovereign, he's majestic, he's omnipotent, he's powerful. And, um, and then we're, we're being told by John, watch carefully, and I'll show you God. Oh. And then, then God washes the feet of his disciples. And Christianity early on makes a decision to say, well, that's not really God. That's just the human nature that is a temporary digression from his eternal status, right? And that's how the doctrine of kenosis mm -hmm. develops. And and I have to say to my, uh, I, I hate to have to say it, but right, I think one of the, the hymns that we sing that points us in exactly the wrong direction, right? Is Jesus once of humble birth, now he comes in glory, right? Once he suffered that, but now he comes, right? Yeah, that's interesting. That the same. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, if you love that hymn, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you, but that motion, that movement to say that isn't the real God. And I, no, no, that is the real God. That's everything. And... And I think as Latter-day Saints, we have the obligation to recognize that and to celebrate, no, that is mm. the fullest, most perfect revelation of God in that moment. And that's why I oh. think it, what you've told us before, or what I've absorbed from your work, is that that's why Mormonism in particular resonates with you so much, is that we have that weeping God more specifically in our, in our theology. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And mm. I... And, um, yeah, I get. I, I I sometimes can get a little bit exercised about this subject because you know I was uh, I was at a, an interfaith religious conference once where I was supposed to be modeling how to do interfaith dialogue. And so there's a Methodist <laughs> theologian and 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 myself, and and this comes up Moses seven. I raise Moses seven, and I say this is the first time in Christian history where we have textual corroboration of this principle that God weeps with us. And the dean of the College of Theology stood up and he said, he said, 
Jonathan Wesley was there 50 years before Joseph Smith. And I said, are, are you familiar with your Methodist creeds? Hmm. And he thought a minute and he said, well, we don't really pay attention to those. Oh, oh well. <laughs> because the Methodist Creed says, right, God without wow. body parts or passions. Yeah. And you can, I, you know, I've heard all of the sophistry and the arguments about, well, that's not what passion. Mm. No, passions means susceptibility to movement from mm. outside. What was he referring to with the Jonathan Wesley? Well, that, that, um, that John Wesley talks about God in these lovely terms mm. as a loving, caring, you know, beautiful God that, um, and, you know, Brigham Young said he, he said, I don't imagine there was a, a more righteous man who ever lived on the earth than John Wesley. So he was mm. a, a, a terrific individual. But the fact is that his church mm. would not officially canonize that view of God yeah. as passable, as suffering. Yeah. Uh, and we've got it in the book of Moses. I think that's a remarkable um, milestone in so religious too. history. Yeah. We've spent um, quite a bit of time in this, uh, you know, place of potentially, you know, in these, in these headwinds, um, you talk about a, a potential stance someone can take where they're not really feeling the headwinds at all. That, and you, you refer to it as presumptuous certainty. Yeah. And what this is, a, this is a great line in the book. I don't know who, if you or Nathaniel wrote it, but you say it's not, presumptuous certainty is not just exaggerated faith, it's idolatry. Yeah. Uh, strong, strong language. Yeah. Could you yeah. talk about what presumptuous certainty is and why, yeah. why we, you, we do, we do label first. that strong faith. That's a solid, yeah. strong testimony. Yeah. Like that can slide totally yeah. by with, yeah, I you think know, with full Nathaniel's approval. Formulation. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he's very good on the principle of idolatry and idolatry can take many forms in faith and in discipleship. Uh, one of them is a, a certainty that we have no grounds to claim. Um, I, I, I look, I believe fervently that the sum is given to know that Jesus is the Christ. So I don't dispute that. But the problem is we presume to know more than we do. And that's why we had an apostolic warning, right? Just a few conferences ago that said, right, President Oak said, we know a lot less about the afterlife, for example, than we, than we think we do. So I think we're talking about that kind of dogmatism that thinks faithfulness is represented or reflected in the degree of certainty that one professes. Um, whereas Christ is always um, acknowledging and validating those who are wrestling with their faith, as in the Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think one particular form that that idolatry takes that Nathaniel has pointed out is, is a, uh, imputing infallibility to prophets or to scripture, mm -hmm. is to make of them an idol. Mm -hmm. Because it's easier to live in a world of black and whites and it's easier to live in a world where our faith is never called into question. Yeah. And uh, I don't think our faithfulness should ever be called into question, but I think our faith should always be, yeah, expanding, organic, and developing. Mm. Yeah, I appreciated that. And that seemed like a really fruitful way to reckon with the elephant. Like, ask, wh which, which thing am I presuming because I am so uncomfortable with uncertainty that yeah. I must, yeah. I have to have an answer. Um, but talk about, I, I loved you use this phrase epistemological nihilism because, and it made me laugh when I read that part because I was totally there by that point in the book. Like, okay, well then there's no, you, like, I this believe. This book was a real journey for I know, Robbie. No, yeah. <laughs> like, I was totally convinced. Like, okay, everything is this amalgamation of my biases and my DNA and my intuition and my experience. And like, I don't even know what I have that is real. So, so talk about like when you get to that point and you, you, yeah. you are so open, it feels like 
you don't even you just don't even know. Well, I so let me let me come at it from a different angle okay. and see if this see if this is this helps. But you know, we start the book off with this what we think is a counterintuitive thesis, right? Which is that the problem is not secularism that faith is hard. The problem is that faith is too easy. Today. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yep. And uh, and so you know, at first that sounds uh, well. You just right. You you react against that, and then. It takes like 10 seconds to review the history of Christianity enough to know that's obviously yeah. there's a historical basis for that, right? In the first four centuries, you're fed to the lions if you, right? right. Not always, but I mean, the recurrent waves of persecution, you're, you're marginalized, you're disadvantaged in every way, and you're disadvantaged personally, right? The sacrifices and the, the ascetic uh, practices. And, and then suddenly, Constantine makes Christianity the religion of the state. People can't get baptized fast enough. And the fact is that that, that that social and cultural capital is still with us today. Try running for president of the United States as an atheist. Good luck, right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't do it. You couldn't get through the primaries, which is proof, dispositive, right there at a, at a glance, that there, there is cultural capital associated with, with believing. And so what, what we're trying to suggest is that genuine faith because because surveys don't measure faith right they measure affiliation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are you willing to call yourself a christian are you willing to have your name on the records of this church but no survey can say what price are you willing to pay for your belief and so i think we don't know what we believe that's part of what we're saying is we don't know what we believe until it comes at a cost and that cost can you know take many many forms um I loved a conversation that was related to me by a Catholic friend when I was in graduate school. And he just mentioned that he'd been talking to a group of other graduate students and somebody had mentioned Terrell was a Mormon. And somebody said, oh, I could never be a Mormon. I can't imagine being required to give 10% of your income to the church. And he said, I responded to him by saying, I'd hate to think there was nothing in my life that was not worth 10% of my income. Yeah. Oh, and I thought I think wow. he gets it better than than many wow. of us do. But I think that's that's a lovely example of the costliness of faith. You that yeah. proves to yourself something about what what you believe and what yeah. you're willing to to uh, to sacrifice as a demonstration yeah. of that belief. I appreciated that part, and I also felt like you, maybe it's that resistance that you were talking about that that what you believe is revealed through your actions, because I. I did experience that. Like there was definitely a point where I could have looked back and told you that I believed the, you know, the articles of faith in order because I just, it, that was a, it was presumptuous. Like it was something I had never challenged, but there was definitely a point where, where all of that sort of slipped through my fingers involuntarily. And I wanted, I, I felt like I was at a crossroads where I had to choose new actions. And so this question of what do I believe felt totally crushing because I didn't know what to do and I, I didn't know what I had left. So so how how is what you believe revealed when you're at that, like what people experience as a crisis? Because And you're seeing like the next step you were going to take. Whatever I didn't the know what my new action should be because Because I, you didn't know what you believed. Yeah. Like yeah. I felt like I got new information. And so everything came screeching to a halt because I, I thought maybe the new information meant that my action should be different. So I, I like this idea that yeah. belief isn't an emotion, right? but I felt very stuck in okay, that. let me let me instead of answering that question, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna intensify that. Question. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so uh, you know, my wife has been 
very much involved in bringing relief to Ukraine. She made a yeah. personal journey to the front lines where she wore body armor and bomb blasts were in the visible distance. Um, she hosted a fireside recently where a, uh, a volunteer came back from the front lines where he's been serving, uh, delivering first aid, first right in wow. person to frontline troops, undergoing terrific harm and living under conditions that are just unthinkable. And I asked her after the fireside, I said, is he a Latter-day Saint? And she said, um, he used to be, but I understand that he's, he's, he's not affiliated anymore. And then the phrase, the covenant path, came to mind. And so I asked myself, has he left the covenant path? Now, I want to be careful here. I want to be misinterpreted. <laughs> I don't want to be misinterpreted. I fully uh, embrace and accept the principle of covenants that have a sacramental dimension, uh, a, a covenantal dimension to the obligations we have as Latter-day Saints. But I also think there's a very important sense in which he didn't, and in which in his own life he found a place in a covenant path that is incredibly beautiful and meaningful. And so just asking that question, I think, is, uh, is a useful exercise because it illustrates how great the distance can be between thinking we're on a covenant path because we, f we fulfill certain performative mm. acts and finding what the whole covenant path is supposed to be directing us toward, which is the Christ-like life of service and, and compassion. Wow, that's really, it, I feel like there's so much to really think about because it's much easier to believe that, I guess to believe that it's very, that it's black and white, you know, like that, that gets, that gets very nuanced and challenging and is really a wrestle. And maybe it comes back to this point that you made that like, we are, we are incapable of judging, you know, and, but I even wonder if like, in our own journey, like sometimes we, so much of this experience of doubt feels like guilt because the prescription that we've been given is so black and white, you know, or maybe just the prescription that we've absorbed is so black and white that it's very hard to imagine that faith could express itself in a different way that is just as, or even more connecting, maybe even more real, but looks different. And and that is troubling. It's, no, it's very it, troubling. No, no, I, yeah. And, and, and so I try to figure out, you know, my own work and life, why, what has happened and what is happening that so much of our emphasis has shifted from living the gospel to believing the gospel. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, I just, I remember what happened in John chapter six, which just always hits me with its poignance, right? When Christ teaches hard things, it doesn't say, and so they left the church. What does it say? They walked no more with him. What a beautiful image that discipleship is about walking with Christ. It's living his life with a community. And so I just think there's, there's proof that something is amiss just in the language we use. Yeah, he left the church. He mm. left the church. It's mm -hmm. not, it's, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Wait a minute. What, what is central to our lives in the church? It, it, it should be, right? 
everything is pointing us to Christ. And so, uh, my own conversion, if I, if I think of that as a, as a process, has, it has to involve that moment when I transition from affirmation of belief to experience of the fruits of that belief. And, um, you know, it, Fiona and I have traveled our journeys very much in parallel, and we've experienced some of the same transformative events and moments together. And one of those when, was when we were reading Julian of Norwich. Both of us came from backgrounds where we didn't see a lot of uh, tenderness and um, Christ-like service and compassion in our immediate circles. And so we read these propositions about a weeping God, read these propositions about the parental nature of heavenly parents. But it was reading Julian of Norwich that we experienced through her words vicariously the reality of God's love and felt it. Mm-hmm. And so if you haven't had a personal experience of God's love, and I think it can come through reading the Book of Mormon, it can come through hearing general conference talk. It can come from watching as a group of elders come to your home and put on a new roof. But if we aren't looking for some opportunity to experience and know that in a personal way, then we're never moving from faith to faithfulness. And and we can't. Do you think it's possible to move to faithfulness without understanding those explicit things that you believe? Now, that's a great question. I think, I think you know, uh, Mother Teresa didn't read the Book of Mormon, but she found a way to understand and know uh, the meaning of Christ and his life. If I were to give my reasons for loving the church and being committed to it, one of them would be that I think it creates an optimal environment to make God real in our lives. I think there is an array of inspired and brilliant doctrines and practices that give us maximal adv- advantage and opportunity to experience God. And I think that's from you know the ministering program and home teaching to a lay ministry to the organization by wards unparalleled in the Christian world to doctrines of a weeping God and a heavenly mother. And so... So I I think that there is a unique positioning of the church to maximize our opportunities yeah. to, to find God. I love that. And and do you feel like, can I just press you one more time on this point? Like, we'll never be able to prove truth claims, right? Like this is a this is a religious spiritual matter. Like at the end of the day, there will always be some amount of uncertainty. So if we set that aside, are all of those reasons strong enough to stay that faithful uh yeah i think i think i think they have to be but i and, and maybe this is a equivocation right mm-hmm. but i think it's significant like significant that when the lord refers to those who don't believe in section 46 where the gifts of the spirit are enumerated the capacity the this is all implicit right the capacity to believe on others words is a spiritual gift so I think even if we are not feeling ourselves that we have that confirmation that gives us mm-hmm. certainty, we can trust that, yes, 
the grounds are there that can be sufficient yeah. for a life of unwavering commitment based on this empowerment that the Spirit can give us. Yeah, I love that. And I know we've got to end here, but I did want to ask you about this one really beautiful section near the end of the book on prayer. And uh, you sort of make the argument, you and Nathaniel make the argument that uh, sometimes we the stakes are too high for our own yeah. for our own prayers. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if with that in mind, if you might address whoever's listening to this that's feeling the headwinds uh, very strongly in their lives right now and what and maybe give some suggestions for what prayer might look like to them that may may be unexpected. Okay. Yeah, I think um, one of the most common features in disaffection from the church, not universal, but almost it seems to me, is the failure of prayer in a personal life. I heard stories about this again just yesterday from people I knew. Uh, you talking like I read the Book of Mormon, I prayed, I didn't feel anything. Yes, that... but even more commonly, it's a it's a it's a more general thing. It's like I I, I woke up one day and I realized I'd never had a spiritual experience, mm. and so I set out on a very determined program of prayer. And after weeks and months, I never once felt God's presence okay. or felt Him answer my prayer. So I'm out of here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, it just struck me as we were writing this chapter how much that is like right the. The nerdy uh, freshman in high school, you know, like maybe I was, who was afraid to ask on a date, somebody on a date, because you don't want to be reaffirmed in your self-doubt. <laughs> right. And I think that something at work is at work in prayer like that, where we get to a point where we're afraid to test the waters because we can't take one more. Disappointment. Disappointment. And so uh, I've gone through periods in my own life like that. And one of the one of the ways through that that I found was reading the Psalms and finding those Psalms in particular that resonated with me as just beautiful moments of celebrating the beauties that one can recognize in God's creation or in the thought of a redeemer or in the notion of a benevolent God. And we are so accustomed to thinking of prayer as dialogic, which indeed it can be, that we forget that I think prayer is or can be primarily an instrument of worship. And if we can learn to pray without expectation of a transaction and see it as an opportunity to commune, and I think to commune simply means to put ourselves right, like Samuel, here I am, uh, speak, thy servant is listening, then I have had some of my most joyful moments of prayer on those occasions where I wasn't asking for an answer, I wasn't hoping for, um, hoping for some kind of a response, but just saying, no, it's, it's enough for me to be able to just bow and acknowledge the beauty of the gospel and this God in whom I hope, uh, even in those moments when I can't know. We were kind of talking about how I think as a cynic, you could read that part and say, you know, okay, so basically not getting an answer is an answer and getting an answer is an answer. And, but, but I, I will say, 
I couldn't even make myself go there because that has been my experience too. That when I stopped needing to meet God in the way I expected with this, with this, I don't know, some kind of experience that was, that I could talk about. And, and I think it took years of sort of rewriting what I expected prayer to be, but it, it kind of did reemerge for me as this worshipful experience. And what I see now is that like, those moments are the most connecting like and and this comes back to the end of the end of your book the last that last psalm that those those moments of prayer where i'm approaching god not with this expectation that i will feel a sudden epiphany but just this maybe gratitude is the best the closest word but that does fill me with that god feeling it fills me with the with that loving kindness feeling that makes me feel connected and it just it feels backwards because I stopped obsessing over that experience, but like that is what reemerged when I let it go. Yeah, and so yeah. when you when you said it, I I felt like I want to like go to the cynical place and say, but really, like you, that's a cop out. But like I believe it, I really do. Like that has been my objective reasoning experience. Like yeah, that yeah. is what happened exactly for me. Yeah, so I really yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, thank you. I I think ultimately my I guess my final response to the cynic. Well, two 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 things I would say the. The, the disadvantage of being an atheist is that you'll never be able to say, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a good but, but One way or the other. The other, yeah. the other answer, I guess, that I would ultimately give to the cynic is, you know, life is risk. You know, get used to it or good luck in loving relationships. And so I, I don't make excuses. I don't try to find an end run around it. Ultimately, f- faith is an act of risk and vulnerability. And um, I am willing to uh, engage in that risk because of what I believe and hope is on the other side of that that risky venture. I w- I love that, and it just reminded me of this last line that we didn't talk about. But you say that that faith is stepping into a living stream, and that's a line that just stayed with me. It really implies. This feeling of movement that there that it's not going to stay in one place and that's right in the in the same way that water is flowing there's there is this kind of expectation of growth that's going to be uncomfortable but perfectly healthy exactly the way it should be yeah and I I love yeah. that yeah thank you yeah. yeah that takes me to um, I I love Gadamer the German philosopher Gadamer and my favorite expression from his writings is the genuine question and he says the genuine question is a question whose answer you really don't know yeah but one which can change your life. It can take you in directions you don't anticipate. And that's why very few of us are willing to ask genuine questions. I love that. So true. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you Nathaniel. And thanks, Nathaniel. Nathaniel could have been here. Yes. Yeah, we love this book. Great to talk with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Terrell Gibbons. You can pick up the book Into the Headwinds on Amazon or Desert Book. And a big thanks to Terrell for coming on to speak with us. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters. And we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.